Hello and welcome to the 5 by. On this week's episode, Mike hangs 10 with Tavarua. Ruth takes flight with Odin's Ravens. I'll be back to give a window into playing Sagrada. Lindsay has our gears turning with Arkwright. And Mason gives us the lay of the land in King Domino. Let's move into our first review. Hello, it's Mike, and today I wanted to talk about Tavarua, the surfing game from Cody Miller and Far Off Games. Tavarua is a surfing competition simulation game, and pretty close to as far as one can get from my interests. But sports-based games have been hot in board gaming of late, and as my review of automobiles showed in episode 1, I don't really have to connect to the sport to enjoy the game, assuming the game is well-crafted. With Tavarua, I was looking for something more than just a straight-up race between players, the primary mechanism of the game is playing cards from your hand to affect the balance of your surfer once you are on a wave. Each player has a double-sided board sheet in front of them and a balance token. You choose the sheet side based on which board you are currently riding, your longboard or shortboard. Then as you enter and ride waves, the cards you play shift your balance forward and backwards the number shown. The goal being to keep your balance token on your board until you get back to the beach or as long as you can without wiping out. The higher the number on the card, the more points that card will score when you complete your run, but the harder it is to stay on your board as it will send your balance forward and backward the same number of spaces. And it's not just your own cards that affect your balance. At the end of each round, the top wave card is flipped and it also affects the balance of everyone currently on a wave. You won't know the exact amount it will shift you until it flips, but the back of the card does give you a rough idea of what is coming. If you manage to stay upright on your board, you are now riding the way back to shore. You can stay on for as long as you like, and you'll want to stay on because the values on the cards you play while riding a wave get added up for your score when you either bail or reach the beach. If you wipe out though, you only score the highest card, which is brutal. So if you don't think you can stay on when the next wave card flips, sometimes it's better to bail early and lock in the points you've earned so far. Okay, but let's get back to assuming you're riding the wave all the way back to the beach. This is the coolest part of the game in my opinion. The waves are cardboard pieces that slide across the board. At the start of each round, the wave currently at the beach is slid out and placed at the furthest point. Then you slide that wave forward to the number 6 spot on the board, pushing all the other waves forward. You are literally sliding the waves and the surfers on them back to the beach. You then roll a die and place it on the wave to represent when that wave will break. A wave only breaks when its value is equal to or greater than the distance from the shore. And because I took oceanography in college and am a big nerd, Yes, I find this to be cool. But for the game this is important because big rolls break early and can give you a longer ride to shore for more points. You also get bonuses when catching the perfect wave, which is when you catch a wave where the die value matches the distance exactly. You also get bonuses for making it back to the beach, hanging 10 on your longboard, or successfully surfing a barrel, which is really hard to do. There are also stoke tokens you at various points of the game that you can either turn in for points on a completed run or are used to buy cards that affect gameplay in some helpful but fairly minor ways. Once you're back to the beach and your run is scored, you can switch boards if you wish and then you play cards to paddle out and catch your next wave. And that's pretty much the gist of Tavarua. Once the wave deck is completed, the game is over. The players with the highest combined shortboard scores and the highest combined longboard scores win those trophies. Then, only the trophy winner's scores for the other boards are compared, and whoever did the best on that board is declared the grand champion. Which is kind of unfortunate, because having a higher combined total for both boards gets you nothing. But maybe this is how surfing competitions actually work. I really like how this is a competition that isn't direct zero-sum gain. There are rules about multiple people trying to get on the same wave at the same time, which can really mess someone up. 
And maybe it's we're too polite or because we've only played four player, but that's never happened in any of my games. It's just not worth the risk of wiping out. Instead of fighting the other players, you are clearly playing push your luck against the randomness of the game. And setting up that randomness of the wave pile is really my biggest ding against the game. I understand they want the waves that affect your balance to be as random as possible, but first you shuffle the barrel cards and deal some into the wave deck. Then you shuffle the wave deck and discard the top cards to get a subset of cards that no one can predict. And this could just be because card counting is not a skill I possess, but that seems really unnecessary for as short, light, and fun as Tavarua is. The core stress of card play and how it affects your balance is really interesting. Your short board has only 5 spaces on it, and when you start in the middle to catch a wave, that's not a lot of wiggle room. Your long board gives you 7 spaces, and that seems much more roomy. To the point where I wonder if it doesn't make sense to always start with your long board. Start there, ride some waves, earn some stoke tokens, then switch to your short board and use the stoke tokens to modify your card values up or down 1 per token to stay on your board. Knowing to start with your longboard can really help a player later with their shortboard scores. And you'll need that help because the timing wave deck is pretty short. At most you can only risk wiping out once or twice and still have time to do 4 complete or near complete rides. That the scores are added for each board type to determine the trophy winners makes for strong encouragement to bail if you don't think you can stay on. But those are some minor concerns for me. The quick playtime, the enjoyable card play, the toy factor of the components and sliding the surfers, my kid's favorite part, and the excellent inclusive art make Tavarua an enjoyable game for my family. Until next time, this is Mike Grizzly, and you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and this week I wanted to talk about an absolutely gorgeous two-player race game. Odin's Ravens was designed by Thorsten Gimler, and its revised second edition was published in 2016 by Osprey Games, featuring art from Johan Egerkrenz. Odin's Ravens pits two players against each other in a friendly-ish competition to circumnavigate the world. You see, each player takes the role of one of Odin's companion ravens, whom he sends out in opposite directions each day to travel the earth and report back. After years and years of this same daily task, the ravens have turned it into a competition to see which one of them can circle the earth and return to the Allfather first. For the game, the course is laid out as a line of 16 cards, each displaying two terrain types domino style. This creates a loop, where players will travel along one side of the cards, cross the last one, and then travel back across the other sides. As each raven is traveling in the opposite direction, players will enter the race on different sides of the first card, which means each of them will complete the course by reaching the spot that was their opponent's starting space. Players each have their own deck of flight cards, each of which shows one of the terrain types that appear on the course, and in order to move to the next space, a player must play a card of the same type, or play a pair of matching cards which act as a wild. The ravens move along the course in this way, playing as many cards from their hand as they can, in an attempt to gain ground over their opponent. So far, pretty simple, and not all that interesting. But those ravens don't play completely fair, and so each player has a second, smaller deck available to them. These cards are the Loki cards, representing calling upon the trickster god to manipulate the race, and the smart use of these cards is where the true strategy of Odin's ravens comes in. When a player draws cards, they can choose to take any combination from their flight or their Loki deck, keeping in mind that there are only 8 Loki cards in the player's deck, and once used, these cards are out of the game. Each Loki card allows the player to take one of two options. These options include skipping forward a step, moving their opponent back, drawing more cards, switching, sliding, or rotating the land cards that make up the course, 
or even adding an additional land card beside the course, which adds a loop of two extra spaces that has to be traversed. But players also have to keep in mind that they're running the same course just flipped, so if they toy with the start of their opponent's race, they'll have to deal with that manipulated area themselves towards the end. Players take turn playing as many cards as they can and want to, and then draw three cards in some combination from their two decks, and potentially will discard down to seven. Interestingly, if a player discards a Loki card at this point, it's also out of the game. Trickster's favors apparently come with a shelf life. Once a player reaches their opponent's start space, the race is over, and that raven is declared winner. It's a quick playing game, taking just 20 to 30 minutes, and so far when I've played, which I'll admit is not as many times as I would like, it's always been a pretty close race, often coming down to the last few turns, and to a combination of good luck with card draw and judicious use of the last few Loki cards as the ravens scrabble their way towards the finish line. It's a game with simple rules, but that has interesting twists and strategies emerge as you play. Even in a learning game, players start to see fun ways to use Loki cards to manipulate the situation, and repeated play only serves to highlight and emphasize the strategy involved in using the trickster's aid to its fullest. Figuring out how to time your use of Loki cards is interesting, and I've seen players do equally well saving their cards for the end versus using a lot of them early to gain some early ground and having just one or two left for the final leg. The game may be light, but it's still really satisfying when you do well, because all of your decisions feel meaningful. Production-wise, Odin's Ravens is simply stunning. The box cover art is gorgeous, and it opens like a book to reveal an equally impressive presentation. The decks are displayed within, and tucked underneath each raven's cards is a beautifully detailed wooden raven piece, each of which is finished in a different stain. Combined with the vibrant, almost luminescent art on each card, it makes for an impressive setup on the table. And while the beauty wouldn't make up for mediocre gameplay, it enhances and adds to the experience when you're playing a game that's this good by itself. Now the cards are an odd size, so you won't be sleeving them if that's your thing. But they feel like they'd be able to live up to a ton of plays without being too worse for wear, so I wouldn't be too concerned. If you play two-player games, then I highly recommend adding Odin's Ravens to your collection. It's easy to teach, quick enough that you can easily shuffle and reset for a rematch, and overall it's just a joy to play. Loki cards are often direct attacks, but it doesn't feel too mean or spiteful, though I don't mind a touch of take that in my game, so your mileage may vary on that one. At under $20 online, it's a no-brainer. And honestly, I paid about $21 or so for mine at a local game store and consider it more than worth every penny I spent on it. It's a beautiful game, and I'm sure I'll be regularly hanging out of my game bag for the future. So until next time, I'm going to be wheeling and dealing with the trickster himself, but you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter as Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. The summer between my junior and senior year of high school, I got to take a trip to Quebec. In spite of not being religious, I had a fascination with religious buildings, so visiting the beautiful basilica in Quebec City was high on my list. I'm pretty sure that somewhere in a box at my dad's house are dozens of photos I took of the impressive architecture and the many stained glass windows that adorned the cathedral. So when I first heard about Sagrada from Floodgate Games, my interest was piqued. Released in 2017 and designed by Adrian Adamescu and Daryl Andrews, Sagrada is a game where you're building your own stained glass window by rolling and drafting different colored dice. At the start of the game, each player is given a few options of windows they can build. The more difficult a window a player chooses, 
the more skill tokens that player starts with. Players are also given an individual secret objective, and some public objectives are also laid out. Lastly, three special tool cards are made available for anyone to use at any point in the game, as long as they have the skill tokens to do so. The player slips their chosen window card into their player board, creating the grid to place their drafted dice each turn. Gameplay begins with the start player pulling from the bag a number of dice equal to double the number of players plus one. Dice are rolled, and drafting begins with the start player picking and placing first, and then a serpentine draft around and back up the table. Players can opt to not draft if there are no dice that they want or that they're able to play on their turn. Players can also choose to spend some of their skill tokens to use the powers on those tool cards that could allow them to re-roll dice, draft twice in a row, or ignore some of the placement guidelines when dropping their die into their window. So let's talk about those guidelines. When you place a die into your window, there are a few simple rules you must follow. Number one, you must place your first die on the perimeter of your window, and then every other die you place must touch at least one other die, even if it's only diagonally. And number two, adjacent dice must be of a different color and different value than the dice around them. Lastly, your window card will have some spaces that limit what color die or what value die you can place in that space. And unless one of those special tool cards let you ignore that limitation on your turn, you must honor the rules of that space. Other than that, anything goes as you try to maximize your points by getting the most out of your personal secret objective and the public objectives on the table. The game is played over 10 rounds, and then end-of-game scoring happens. Points are awarded based on the rules of the private objective and the public objectives, plus any leftover skill tokens a player has. Points are deducted for blank spaces left on a player's window, and then a winner's declared. Sagrada plays one to four players. Now, I'm not one to play games solo, so I can't really speak on how well it plays as a one-player game, but I can say that it's enjoyable from two to four. The first couple rounds tend to go a little slower than the rest as players take that leap and lay their Windows foundation, but it seems with every game that I play come round four, turns are fast and each round lasts maybe a minute or two. I love the puzzliness of the game, trying to balance the planning of building a window that will get you maximum points with the chance that comes with rolling dice is a challenge, but in the best way. Plus, it's pretty. The player boards are super impressive and of such a high quality. The only part of the components I don't like are those skill tokens and would have loved to see something color-coded for each player instead of the clear, flat marbles that they went with. Otherwise, they knocked it out of the park. The gameplay itself is Simple and not hard to teach, but I think it would be best enjoyed by those who have a fair bit of hobby game experience, or for people who love logic puzzles or games like Sudoku, since this taps into that same skill set and brain power. Since Sagrada arrived at my door, I tend to think of this game first when thinking of what I want to play, since it sets up easily and tears down just as fast, and yes, that's a huge selling point for me. At the time of this recording, 
Sagrada has been shipped to all its Kickstarter backers and will be shipping on the mass market in just a few days. It looks like it'll retail for about $40, and knowing what I know after playing this game, I'd happily pay that price to have Sagrada on my shelf. For the 5 by I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Hello, it's Lindsay here. In this episode, I'm going to talk about Artwrite, designed by Stefan Risthouse, published by Capstone Games, with artwork by Harold Lysk. It's a 2-4 play game that lasts for around 120 to 240 minutes, and I'm talking about Arkwright, the second edition. I have to start by telling you this was a game I probably wouldn't have purchased myself. I heard the words economic simulation and stocks and shares and automatically thought, I'm scared. If you know me by now, you'll know it's not because I only like frothy, whimsical themes, because that's definitely not the case. And it's not that I don't like heavy games, because I absolutely do. But I'm terrible at mathematics, especially on the spot, think on your fate mathematics. And it's actually held me back quite a lot over the years, because numbers just freak me out. I'm more of a words kind of girl. So I honestly think that since playing tabletop games over the past few years, I've definitely improved on my math skills. So I think it's done me the world of good. But no, Arkwright isn't a game I probably would have chosen myself. But it was suggested to me and talked to me and I really enjoy it. Because I'm afraid of something doesn't always mean I won't try it. And sometimes if the mood strikes, I think, yeah, I'm up for this challenge today. Despite my mathematical issues, I'm actually not too bad at Arkwright. I think I've won once, I believe. But I'm not fantastic either. And it's really a game you have to be super alert and switched on to play. I've previously described Arkwright as a number laden puzzle waiting to be solved and reminiscent to me at least of Monopoly, only infinitely more fun, far more difficult and where you have ultimate control over the fate of your factories and you don't get stuck in jail for no apparent reason. This is a huge game with two hefty rule books so I won't go into great detail about the rules for obvious reasons but I will give you the gist. You have one to four factories available to set up shop, lamps, bread, clothing and cutlery. You build your workforce in order to produce more goods, replace workers with machinery where possible, and this in turn affects the job market and cost of wages. You play the game over five rounds or decades consisting of four cycles. During rounds you play for actions, some of which have an additional ability. You can increase your trade with distribution or quality, upgrade or build additional floors in your factory, meaning you produce further goods but have more workers to pay, and fire your workers for machinery. You can fiddle your numbers in accordance with current demand, how much you are producing and what your competitors are selling at. At the end of each cycle, a factory produces and sells goods. At the end of the decade, there is a random event, sometimes positive, other times not so much. During the game, you sell shares in your company and is ultimately how many shares you have accumulated and what your final stock value is that will win you the game. The water frame variant adds the warehouse and shipping contracts to the main game to make it an even bigger beast. Over the past 12 months, a number of plays later, I finally started to get it, I think. I'm nowhere near mastering up quite yet. I've tried a few different strategies in terms of which factories I'm working with. Cutlery and lamps are the big money makers, but also the more expensive to run. Bread and clothes less so, therefore I've tried an occasion to put the focus on these factories alone. I've also attempted running all four factories, which is incredibly tricky, because that's a hell of a lot of workers to pay out for. And halfway through the game, level one and two factories become obsolete. So you need to upgrade them throughout the game, or when you're forced to do so, and that is really costly. Personally, the most successful strategy I tried was running the cheapest factory, bread, alongside the most expensive, lamps, and I found this balance quite nicely. When we first played Arkwright and was getting the feel for it, we only played with the basic game, which is referred to as Spinning Jenny, but it wasn't long before we wanted to dive into Waterframe. 
Now on reply, we can't not use it. It's a really fantastic addition. By storing goods and shipping them with a contract, you can really rake in the cash and steam ahead of your opponents. I love the tiles that you can pick up with your additional actions. Some are better than others, and as they're randomised, sometimes you'll have a better batch in one game than another. I really like the ones that minimise your outgoings or reduce the cost of taking regular actions. If you do play with the water frame, then you need ships, more workers and contracts, and the additional actions give you these opportunities. What I have found pleasantly surprising with Arkwright is even though it's a heavy game and a real brain burner, it's not too fiddly in my opinion. Each cycle runs smoothly, it has a uniform flow to it, much like machinery. But it's not dull by any means, in fact far from it. I find it really exciting, there's something so satisfying about seeing your factory grow, surveying the empire you created and knowing that you made it happen and the crushing feeling when you lose your sale to your competitor or ends up with so many outgoings you're forced to close the factory which has happened to me on occasion and you've got no one to blame but yourself and your poor choices. Aesthetically I find Arkwright to be incredibly pleasing. It has that industrial revolution feel to it. It's not overly fussy, in fact it's pretty basic but it just looks so good. There's also an abundance of paper money but it's like cardstock and doesn't feel horrible to handle. I've said in the past that Monopoly-esque paper actually makes me physically cringe. I can't stand the feel of it, but not so in Arkwright, thank goodness. So if you're looking for a super heavy game you want to get your teeth into, or an economic simulations are just your thing, then I would highly recommend this one. If you're slightly intimidated like I was, don't let it stop you trying, you might be pleasantly surprised. If you're looking for some light entertainment, a bit of innocent fun, or you're just plain knackered from the working week, this game's probably not always going to be for you. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, Shiny Half Meeples, pop my blog, www.shinyhalfmeeplesblog.wordpress.com, or go on my Twitter, which is capital S, capital H, Meeples. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about King Domino. Right out of the gate, you should know that I absolutely love King Domino. Published in 2016 by Blue Orange Games and designed by one of the true master craftsmen of hobby games, Bruno Catala, with art from Cyril Bouquet, King Domino is a beautiful and inexpensive pleasure of a game in a very small box. If this isn't at least a 2017 Spiel de Jar recommendation, I will be absolutely shocked. After my first play, I jokingly referred to it as Turn Order The Game. But that's sort of part of what makes King Domino so engaging. You're building your own little 5x5 square kingdom in front of you from tiles. The rectangular tiles are made up of two side-by-side -side squares. Get it? Like a domino. Some of these squares have crowns on them, and at the end of the game, you multiply the number of crowns in an area by the number of tiles that make up that area. And that's basically it. But how you choose the tiles sets King Domino apart from every other tile-laying game I've ever played. Each round, four tiles are face up on the table. On your turn, you pick up your worker from the tile you chose last round and place it on the tile you want this round. But in doing so, you've also set the turn order for the next round. So you're constantly having to make the decision between getting the tile that you really want and being stuck with a late pick in a future round. You might even be willing to take a less than desirable tile this round, maybe even one that you can't place and have to discard, because you'll get to go first the next round. Especially in the two-player game, where both players have two workers and choose from four tiles, you can leverage these choices to manipulate turn order to your advantage. If you've played Cathala's wonderful Five Tribes at two-player, the turn order manipulation is similar. King Domino works on a lot of levels for me. I love uncomplicated rules that lead to deep strategy, and Cathala is incredibly good at delivering in that design space. King Domino is currently number one on my to-teach list for my next game night with our gateway group. It's simple enough that I'm positive I could teach this to a smart 7-year-old. 
but there's enough strategy and enough tactical choices to be made that I'm positive there's no way that smart seven-year-old could beat me on their first play. King Domino, and Cathala in general, rewards players who can make tactical decisions with a flexible strategy. Doubling down on forests, for example, probably isn't a way to win. Realizing and accepting that your get-a-lot-of-forest-tiles strategy in the first two rounds is a loser and jumping ship to something else is the better choice by far. After about 10 plays of King Domino, I'm becoming much more aware of my sunk costs and much more willing to let them go. Components and box for King Domino are just lovely, as they usually are with blue-orange titles. If you've played Catala's excellent two-player game Longhorn, and if you're a two-player household like we are, you should, the tile quality is very similar. Blue Orange does a high-gloss finish instead of linen, and I actually quite like it. I thought I'd be put off by it, but it really wears very well. The King Domino box is a slightly deeper version of the standard Cosmos two-player size, think Patchwork or Lost Cities, so it shelves very nicely with those games. I normally hate plastic inserts because they rarely work as intended, but here it holds the tiles and all the components perfectly. My one tiny criticism is of the 3D cardboard castles provided for your center tile. They're cute, I get it, they don't hurt anything, but I find them slightly distracting while I'm playing, so we don't use them. I would have preferred that these small, single-space player tiles have a castle printed on them as well, just to distinguish them from the rest of the tiles, but again, it's not a big deal. My one other wish would be for a pad of score sheets, which I think the game sorely needs. Fortunately, there are already a number of fan-made score sheets in the file section on BoardGameGeek, ready for you to print and laminate. Maybe the most attractive aspect of such a great little game is the price. The full retail price, the MSRP, of King Domino is only $19.99, and many of the online game stores have it for as little as $12. There's a ton of value and replayability for your money here. With the exception of possibly the snobbiest and most self-righteous of mega-heavy gamers, and maybe a few ultralight party gamers, I think there's room for King Domino in almost everyone's collection. For us, it's been a perfect weeknight game. Easy to set up, no need for a rules refresher, and in under 20 minutes we could run a series of three before bed. There's a long game variant for two players, where you use all of the tiles in the box to build a 7x7 grid, but the long game only lasts about another 8 minutes for us. I didn't actually think it would be much different, just a little bit longer, but the long-term strategy and placement difficulty increases significantly with the larger grid. Cathala has said that two sets can be combined so that four players can do the same, but I wouldn't recommend it unless everyone is very familiar with King Domino already. In theory, two players could combine two sets and play a giant 9x9 grid game. I, of course, haven't tried this yet, but I'm pretty seriously thinking about picking up a second copy to do so. So who should buy King Domino? People who like tile lane games. People who like making tactical decisions. People who like light rules and deep strategy. People who are willing to take a strategic loss to punish their opponent. And people who want to purchase progressively more game sets to play progressively larger grids of land dominoes, possibly up to infinity. I give King Domino 5 out of 5 French cartoon castles bounded by lakes, forests, fields, and swamps. My name is Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Thanks for listening to The 5 By. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 By Games or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 By Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to The 5 By on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and don't forget your five-star reviews. Or you can follow all of our links at 5 bygamescom